You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! back baby with another episode of the x-man podcast i'm your host doc coil thank you for checking out the show as always my apologies again for taking a week off between shows i've been kind of doing that for the last few weeks doing a show every other week it's been a little inconsistent and this most recent week really has to do with the fact that bad wolves is finishing up our album and Things are just ramping up with just getting some last minute work done. And I was just, you know, after dealing with everything with my father's passing and dealing with that and then rushing back home to work on the album, I kind of reached a burnout period last week and I was getting ready to work on a show and (laughs) my girlfriend looks at me and goes, just, just take the night off. And so. And that was it, just kind of burning the candle at at both ends. And I'm I've been trying to kind of get a grip on my my personal health and you know, physical, mental, all that. And it's definitely been a bit of a, a struggle, but I, I I do feel a lot better. I can say that. And while though it's awesome to have things to bury yourself in, like doing wonderful creative work, you still have to give yourself that chance and that leeway to kind of unfurl from whatever you're dealing with. And I've been going through a lot and that's okay. So just wanted to give you guys that caveat, but hopefully, and I think we should be getting back to a more normal week to week schedule following this episode. Let's cross our fingers, but I think so. But yeah, but the battles album is coming out amazing and it's really exciting. So I can't wait for you guys to hear it. And just wanted to talk real quick. I don't know. Hopefully I can do this real quick about there's been a big news story regarding David Ellison, bass player from Megadeth. And it, this is a tough thing to talk about. Like I, on my other show, last words, we almost talked about it and last second decided not to because of controversy. And it's just sometimes you, some of these third rails, I think people want to stay away from. And I'm not really going to get into the the, the, the nitty gritty of, of the details. And it's obviously important for me to state out front. I'm not neutral when looking at this situation. Dave is a friend. He's been a guest on this show. He's someone that I I've admired for a really long time. And he's been 
nothing but nice to me and, I, and I've and I've had nothing but great interactions with him. So, and of course that's that's anecdotal. Uh and it's always important I think when looking at these scenarios to realize our own bias. It's like the mother of the serial killer who's like, "Oh, my uh my Johnny didn't do it." Well, you're his mother. There you kind of <laughs> We have to take we have to take some of these things with a grain of salt in terms of our perspectives and and to kind of a further extent of that I think is really important when looking at at these situations and I and, and I guess for lack of a better term we could put this under the cancel culture I guess which is even a further extension of the Me Too movement is that I think people have kind of instinctively burrowed themselves into a defensive slash fighting position being that you instinctively go to defend one of the positions. And I, and I, and I think this is not really a great way to look, look at it. I think that what we, what I've kind of gathered from this story and stories like that is that we really kind of have to judge every single one of these stories on their own. And not, and I think unfortunately, some some of the stuff that, and I and I talked about this on the show going way back, that I felt a lot of the the early Me Too stuff was, of course, there were the big ones, the Cosby's and the Harvey Weinstein's, which were so egregious and over the top, and Mark Kelly, I would, I would put in that in that in that case as well, where you just these were people who abused their power and got away with it for a long time and they, and they really deserved kind of what, what, what came to them. But I think outside of those really specific examples, I think things just get a lot murkier, murkier. And I think with, with this, this scenario, we have a situation where actually I think Ellison might be a victim in this as much as anyone, because his private videos and stuff that is very revealing was essentially put out there by, by a third party. And, you know, the woman that was involved basically said she was not a victim. She was not groomed. And I think that has a lot of that. She, you know, it was consensual and she pursued him and all that. And I think we can look, go there and look at the, the moral element of it and make our judgments. And the, and the way I go with that is, we all make mistakes in life. We all fuck up. Just not all of our mistakes and fuck ups are for all the public to see. Uh, and so I feel like a lot of that stuff is just pr their private business. Uh, so I, to, to some degree, I, it, it's tough to even talk about that because I feel like it's dipping a toe into someone's private private life. But I don't know. It just it makes me really think about this whole movement, because I think it's become very galvanizing where you have one subset of people who see themselves as activists and kind of vigilantes, uh, whose jobs it is to, <clears throat> to hold people's people accountable, you know, and, but unfortunately, and I think there, there's some good can be done with that, of course, uh, especially when you're dealing with great differences in power dynamics between people who have a lot of power and the idea that now this has been kind of 
democratized, right? And I, I just think pe- what has happened is people are more motivated by the term itself and put everything under that umbrella. And there are certain things, I mean, it's almost as if people just can't be fired. <laughs> they have to be canceled, right? They, they can't just be, I mean, people be getting fired for doing dumb shit for as long as there have been jobs, right? <laughs> we just happen to be in a situation where these companies essentially, or maybe it's a band or whatever, they make some type of determination that it's not worth the trouble for their business to keep a particular person on. And so that in many ways is their prerogative, right? And I, you know, I, I brought this up with the woman who was fired from the Mandalorian. I goes, it's Disney. Disney is in the kind of clean and no drama business. So you can make a reasonable and logical leap that that will go into factoring who they hire and fire. And no one's entitled to any job really, right? I think that makes sense. And when I think you look, when you look at what people are trying to get out of it, right? So let's say I'm talking from the canceler side, quote unquote, what they really want to do is take someone's life and livelihood and have it definitively disrupted due to online activism. That's pretty much what it is. And and if that doesn't happen, right, then you're probably not being canceled, right? If you didn't lose a job, if you weren't kind of harassed or bullied out of a particular space, then you then then you probably weren't. But I also think that conversely, we have a, a new phenomenon where essentially you have a group of people who instinctively want to support qu- people they perceive to have been canceled. So in, in a way, it doesn't matter what that person has done. Now it's become a new symbolic gesture that you're against cancel culture as a whole. Now, of course, this is actually bullshit because all of these people who pretend to be against cancel culture have no problem going after someone else that they don't like. Maybe if to someone on a particular political spectrum or what have you. And I think now we might be actually reaching this point where you might have people almost in the way where gangster rappers <laughs> wanted to be arrested or or you you want your record to be banned because it 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 gives you kind of street cred. I think we're reaching this this point where now people might almost become uncancelable. <laughs> and and a little bit of that is because I think there are people who are actually undeserving of getting that attention and and having people come come at them like that. So there's so much boy who cried wolf. I kind of made this joke that eventually we're going to reach herd immunity with canceling where so many people are going to be quote unquote canceled that it won't matter. Like everyone will have been canceled. And really all it means is that usually just someone making a gaffe or just doing something. I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. I think we're, we're maybe we've already reached that point, but it might reach a kind of apex where 
no pun intended, it all kinds of cancels each other out. But I think the terminology, we, we need to find, I think, better ways to talk about it because it's a buzzword, right? So if I'm someone who's motivated by that term is like very triggering to people because they hate cancel culture. So if you, if I'm a political, uh, a politician, I'll just say that oh, cancel culture, cancel and the, or woke, 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 you just hear the word and it becomes a, a, a galvanizing thing. And, and when that happens, the words almost become meaningless. And at that point we need to evolve our terminology and the way we kind of think about these things because having the conversations become unproductive at that point. So I don't know if that was a long way around of maybe not saying that much, but <laughs> hopefully I made a few points that uh, made sense. So we do have a show sponsor this week. This is a band from North Carolina. They're called Seeking Sirens and we're gonna play a track entitled Surface. Check it out.
So that track was entitled Surface, and it's by a band, like I said, from North Carolina called Seeking Sirens. And so here's the thing. That track, okay, is not going to come out until May 21st, which is about nine days, 10 days from the release of this episode. So what I'm going to need you all to do is go to their Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash seeking dash sirens and that's seek you know like seek and destroy <laughs> and just follow the band keep tabs on them or just go put a little note in your phone you know for the when the day when that song will be streaming everywhere where you stream music youtube on the 21st but if you go on spotify and itunes now the song's not going to be up so you got to go to their facebook page or you can also go to their in- instagram which is just seeking sirens so Please go check them out. The singer, Joseph Isaiah, I'm actually doing a track for him. Uh, so I got to actually have to write like a metal song for him. He's, he seems like a really cool dude. He's He is sang in bands like From Under, Concrete Kings, and also City of Homes. And they plan to release more singles, videos in the coming months. And just go check them out. Tell them that the X-Men sent you. I, th- I thought that song sounded actually really great. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more music from them. So thank you to Seeking Sirens for sponsoring the show. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you know what to do. Drop in the DMs on social media. I've been, I'm a little behind on my, on my Facebook DMs. <laughs> Apologies. I got to get back in there. It's been, it's been rough, rough month or two. And, or you can email me at thexmanpodcast at gmail.com. I have some shows available. So holla at your boy. Alrighty, business out of the way. We have a great show for you. We have, I I, I think it 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 it's easy to say a a legend within the metal community, one of the great iconic rhythm guitar players of all time. And it's a you know we kind of get into this a little bit uh Dino Cazares of Fear Factory, Asesino, Brujeria, Divine Heresy fame. He and I have a little bit of a checkered past, but I've always been a fan. And that's something that, you know, I'll, at the end of the day, I'm just a fucking fan of this of this music. He's been out there doing tons of interviews, doing lots of podcasts. So I, I really tried to hopefully speak to him and ask him questions about things that hopefully he wasn't talking about on other shows. But... Dino, he he has a giant personality. He's been making tons of headlines <laughs> lately. Uh, going out there, you know, because there's so much going on in, in in the background between what everything that's going on with with Fear Factory and the X members. And by the way, I'm buddies with all those guys, and this what makes the show tough sometimes. I hope hopefully those guys don't get upset at me because I had Dino on the show. Uh, but it it just goes that way. But I. I always feel like in general, I want this to be an open forum. And I know you, the listeners, would enjoy this show. So I had to kind of pay respect to that. And like I said, I have no personal issues with 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 Dino. So, but anyway, hopefully, hope I'm not muddying up the air a little a little too much. But I am a fan. I've heard the new Fear Factory. It's fucking kick-ass. It sounds great. And uh, I just think you guys are going to enjoy the show. So anyway, I'm going to shut the hell up before I start talking all over again in the interview. So please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Dino Cazares.
listen, man, I just want to uh, thank you personally for for being on on the show. Um, you know, it's something you 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 and I discussed, and uh, me and you, you know, had the good fortune to to run into each other not too long ago at the bow, mm-hmm. famous, the famous rainbow. Um, and you know, it's something you know with you being on the show. You know, it's something we talked about and hasn't really been public, but I feel like it's important to kind of talk about that. That you and I essentially were sure. not speaking to each other for a few years. And, you know, it's something that bothered me because I never had any problems with you. I was I was always a fan, you know, and I, I've always yeah. cared, really cared about the community of heavy metal and hardcore and heavy music. And, um, you know, just... I just wanted to kind of put that out there. I don't know if you wanted to just because, like I said, it's not like people knew, but maybe they maybe they assumed because of whatever kind of drama was 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 out there. But I just you know, did you want to speak to that at all on the show, or just kind of like what was going? You on? could speak. What we could speak about whatever you want. Uh, uh, one of the first times I met you was at the Century Media office when I rolled up in my in my truck, cranking tunes, and dude, he, you I remember actually, that, dude? That was like. So Dino wrote 2007. Yeah, eight, was in, nah, this was early before that. This was like oh four or five. And oh shit, that long ago! Wow. So, yeah, I was I was um I was there dropping off CDs of my band Asasino because they were distributing uh, my Asasino record. So that's why I was there at Century Media. Yeah. So he, you, um, were in your SUV. And you had like a pretty like sick ass sound system in the in the vehicle, and he was blasting "God Forbid's Gone Forever." And yeah, you know, for us at that time, as a band who was trying to kind of break out and kind of get to this next level, and to get like respect from someone like you was like such a big validator, you know. So that was that's something yeah. I vividly. Yeah, those are those are some great records back then. You know what I mean? You guys brought some really good quality music uh, that I was a fan of. And you know, I've always been one of those guys who's always tried to follow, you know, up and coming bands. You know what I mean? Because you never stop learning. You know what I mean? You yeah. can learn from some of the new school new school kids that are coming out with new music. Uh, you know, and you can still learn from the classics, which a lot of kids do as well. Or you know, younger fans do that as well too. So it works vice versa. And me just being a big fan of music like that. But yeah, running into you guys was really cool. And then um, a, a few other times we ran into each other. Yeah, we didn't speak for a few years because you were associated with somebody I didn't want to be associated with. So it's kind of like guilty, guilty by association. I didn't necessarily blame you or nothing like that. I just didn't want to be around that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's kind of like how, it's kind of like how, you're an ex-alcoholic or an ex-drug addict. You got to stay away from those type of things. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that you were, I'm not saying you were a heroin or nothing like that, but I'm just saying, you know, you try to try to stay away from that certain thing that, uh, you know, might bring back, might trigger something. You know what I mean? Like a bad memory or whatever. And I was just wondering, you know, like, you know, what took you so long? to realize that you needed to get that out of your life too. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's not something I can address now in here, you know. Um, well, I, I, I thought, I thought we were going to be open right now. Oh, what happened? Well, well, <laughs> unfortunately. No, with, it's all good. It's all good. I, I get it. With, you know, with bad wolf situation, there's definitely like, uh, 
you know, there's legal things going on right now. Um, and there's kind of a collective uh, philosophy right now on, on how to kind of address that situation. And it's been decided to just not really talk about it publicly right right now so that we can well get our it's a good thing it's yeah it's a good thing you got that out of your life so now we can like be friends without that pressure if you know what i mean well listen even even this, for me for me for me though for sure well, you for know sure. but like even on my end i'm friends with and friendly with all the other guys in fear factory as well so it's like and this is what makes doing this show kind of tough because it's like the X-Men. So I'll have like X members of bands and it sucks because sometimes <laughs> someone else in the band might be upset at me because I had someone else in the, in the band that they're not no longer together with. And they think that it's like, um, you know, like choosing sides. And I just don't think that way. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I'm not like, Listen. I can never be in a gang, you know what I'm saying? I can never be in like, all right, we're with this, we're with this. <laughs> And we hate those people. I just don't do. I just I I don't assume other people's dramas or beef. Do you know what I'm saying? I know. I I 100 understand what you're saying, and I never held it against you that you had other ex members on the band at all. Yeah, I'm sorry on your podcast. Yeah, right. Because that's that's your thing, and that's your job, and you're you're a journalist. I guess you would kind of say you're a journalist, right? Definitely not a journalist. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> what, what would you say you are then? What would you say you are? Just uh, I think a, a pod podcaster. Yeah, podcaster is does not have like being a journalist. You have certain standards and certain ethic, ethical. Uh, no standards. And, and here, <laughs> no, there, no, there really is, and the reason why is because it's more important to me for this show to maintain relationships that I care about rather than yeah out some truth right like there are situations where maybe someone some, sometimes someone will say something on the podcast and afterward they'll go hey doc can you remove that section and i'm like yeah of course no problem if i was a journalist that would be kind of not ethical right because the your biggest your main priority is the truth but this show it's really just a forum for me to speak with friends speak with people in this industry or just all creative fields and you know how did you just like said you've been spending all day doing interviews right and when a lot of times you do interviews and you're doing them all day you're promoting a record it sucks because the same questions it's boring it's you know people are, or it's someone trying to get some quote that they can get on blabbermouth to blow it up and i don't want i never want this space to be exploitive you know of of okay no uh, again going back to what the what the first thing you said was like I don't hold it against you about who you have on your podcast because that's your podcast. You're right. That's your forum. That's you, you do that too. So people can actually have, uh, you know, talk about their experiences that they went through. And I, I don't, I didn't ever have that against you at all whatsoever. It was just the other negative part that I had gone through with someone, uh, I'm not even talking about, I'm talking about more the singer of the X stuff, the, the shit that I went through with him yeah. that was pretty violent that I didn't want to, I just didn't want to associate with anybody like that. You know what I mean? And I didn't want that in my life anymore. And just anybody who was connected with him in that way, I just didn't want to be around. So nothing necessarily too personal, but I understand that maybe it might've bothered you. Cause I know, I know we have mutual friends. You might've reached out to some of them and said, yo, what's up Dino? What's up, Adino? You know, why does he even want to talk to me? And um, it was because of that. 
but I don't I don't hold whoever you have on your podcast against you at all whatsoever. I mean, that's your thing. Right that's on. your thing. Listen, I just wanted to bring it up because uh, you know, so I sometimes you know, sometimes you, you don't you want to steer away from those maybe difficult questions or things that may create tension, but I just want to kind of clear the air with that publicly. Not that anyone really, really even knew, but anyway, let's let's move on. Um, but you can ask me whatever you want. Just you know, you can ask me whatever the fuck you want. Awesome. Uh, but don't, but don't think I'm not going to ask you whatever I want either. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, as long listen, most things I can talk about, but that that one situation is uh is is yeah. off off the table for the for the current moment. Um, you reached out to me not too long ago about an article uh, regarding yes. Ibanez seven string guitars where. Steve I had mentioned that, you know, he was, you know, did he actually inv invent this seven string or, or just that version of it? Sorry. Oh, it's all good. Sorry about that. Uh, that he, you know, he put out the seven string guitar, the signature guitar, and it didn't really sell, I guess, outside of like the initial ones that went out there. And then he credited corn for kind of repopularizing the instrument and, giving it this whole new life. But you hit me up saying that you basically felt that that story was not totally accurate and you wanted to give some, I don't know, just give your kind of viewpoint on that. Well, I was just kind of like, you know, he only mentioned one band, like single-handedly, you know, uh, popularized the instrument. No, there was, a, there was a bunch of other guys that even before Korn, you had Trey from Morbid Angel playing that guitar way back. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, corn. What's that? Where the slime lives. Yeah, where the slime lives. Yeah, and myself. You know what I mean? I I believe that I took the instrument somewhere different than what corn did, and uh, nothing against them. You know, they had the basic DiMaggio pickups that came inside it. They played the they played the guitar in its in its basic form, right? I took it in '95 when uh, Ibanez hit me up said, "Look." Ibanez was trying to promote this guitar, right? They wanted other artists to play it. And I remember by 95, Korn hadn't really hit big yet at all whatsoever, right? We were, we were on D-Manufactured. So during the tour of D-Manufactured, I was already playing the 7-string live. But I was like, I needed to make this 7-string more of my own. I wasn't into the pickups that came in it. They were passive pickups. So I bugged EMG. I go, EMG, you got to make a pickup an active, because I was a big fan of active 81 EMG pickups. Of course. I was a huge fan. What's that? I said, of course. That's big. Yeah. So I was like, I was like, there's no active seven strings at that time for this, for this guitar. You know, again, it's a, it's a newer instrument. You know, it was just kind of introduced out there, I think in 94. And so there was nothing for it. And so I was just bugging EMG for, for like, uh, like a good four or five months and they couldn't figure it out how to make uh, the seven string until they go, okay, we got it. And what they did is they put the seven string inside a base case pickup, like a base case. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know what I mean. Like the, yeah, they look like a bigger and longer, bigger and square, like a soap, like a soap bar, they called it. Right. Yeah. So they put it in there. They go, well, we, we came up with something, but you have to modify your guitar. I said, no problem. So I just modified it, routed out the guitar. Ibanez did it for me. We put it in there. That was the first time you've seen a one pickup 
uh, signature, not signature, but I'm sorry, custom made Ibanez with one pickup in it, a seven string pickup. There was nothing else like that before. So I needed to make the guitar fit me, right? So I also had them shave the neck down to make it uh, not feel like a huge bat. Because those necks were, were big back then, right? So I just made them shave the back of the neck down to make it thinner and to make it more, uh, you know, I, I guess it'd be, it'd be better for shredding, right? Yeah. I, I have a small hand. I have a small hand, right? It's not a big hand. So I needed something that was going to fit my hand comfortably, right? And so I had to shave the neck down. So I had to make, make it completely different. So it wouldn't sound like corn. Because <laughs> if you get those pickups, you, you get that one open B, open A, it's going to sound like a corn song, right? So I didn't want that. I didn't want that. I needed to make it sound like for me. So, and uh, there, was a, there, was a, there was a video that came out. It was called the Seventh Heaven Video, right? And it had me, corn, West Borland, uh, and a couple other guys. And I just felt that, Steve Vai kind of just, you know, didn't even mention any of the other guys that helped propel the seventh string to something new, something, you know, take its new places that, you know, everybody, I remember going to NAMM like 1998 or 1999 and every guitar company had a seventh string, right? It just totally blew up. I mean, I was seeing like those, you know, Dan Electro little surf casters, a seven string version, like, acoustic seven string, you know, it was everywhere. It took off like crazy. I just felt that Steve, I, you know, just kind of like just gave all the credit to corn. I just thought that was not, that wasn't cool. Nothing against corn. I just thought that there was other guys who helped uh, popularize that guitar. Yeah. Also, you know, for me, a big one was Meshuga using it. Meshuga. Exactly. And they were, and, and they were using it in 94 around, around that, that time. Um, Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was another band. Do you remember this band? They were from New Jersey. They were called Human Remains. No, I don't remember them. Dude, they it was like a couple guys from Dead Guy and the other guys ended up being in um Burnt by the Sun, but they were in the underground kind of hardcore scene. You you know, every now and again you'd run into a band like that, and they were using really cool effects. But yeah, I, I remember around that time it being almost this, it was exotic. You know, you you go to a show and you'd see a band with a seven string. Like, oh, what's what's going on with this? Uh, but was was there a difference for you because you weren't primarily known as a, a lead player? What was the difference between using a seven string or just tuning a six string to B? What was the well that well that was that was the thing. Um, you know, when Ibanez approached me back in 95, they, they, they were going for guys, they were going for people who were going to help sell that guitar, right? And they recognized that I was tuning my six string down, right? And that was D, that was when D Manufacturer came out, and that was a hot record, right, at that time. You know, we were, at that time, uh, you know, we were selling a lot more records than some of the other bands, right? And so Ibanez recognized that, so we've got to go after this guy, and they did. Um, and they recognized that. So for me, it was like, okay, I don't have to put these gigantic strings on my six string guitar. You know what I mean? That were kind of hard to play in some ways because the strings are so big. Um, and, uh, it it opened up my playing a little bit, you know, especially when I went to, uh, went to record obsolete, 
uh, was able to use these low notes and these high notes, like in a song called like Descent, yeah. you know, something that I wasn't able really to do on the six string. Uh, well, at least not in that tuning. Right. And uh, it just opened up my plane a lot more. And of course, who doesn't want that fucking low eight string fucking chug? You know, who doesn't want that? I don't have an eight string. I'm I'm holding off until I until like absolutely have to get one. <laughs> There's a did I say eight? Did I say eight string? I meant a a tuning string was what I meant. Like you know, like one of these things. There we go. What is? Can you hear that? Yeah. Oh, I did, and now I can't. What happened? It was there, and now it's gone. It's because you're talking. <laughs> Yeah, so it's that one that tuning, man. It's like, so yeah, so that's what I was. I always got a guitar on me, just you know, I always got a guitar around. I know I got all my stuff is over here, you can't see it. Uh, <laughs> so I want to talk about your tone for, for a little bit, signature, sure. signature sound in, in heavy metal, instantly recognizable, and and something that even though you know soul new, new machine made a, a giant impact of course it seemed to really kind of crystallize on d manufacture and kind of like this is the fear factory sound and there's kind of legends amongst guitar players about this modified marshall you were using back then that was stolen can you can you talk about this 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 legendary amp you want me to cry right now? <laughs> yeah, man. When when that app got stolen, man, I was I was like, oh my god! It was like, uh, it, you know, it felt like, it almost felt like somebody died because that was my, that was my sound. That was that was my tone, and I fought for that sound. To believe believe it or not, when we went in to do D manufacture, me and Colin fought the producer Colin Richardson. Uh, for some for some of the people out there don't know don't know him, he's produced a lot of great records. Um, we fought about my guitar tone because he didn't like my Marshall. He mm. didn't like it. It was a modified he like Marshall. It? He just did. He wanted me to use the at the time the fifty one fifty with a tube screamer. Yeah, like the machine right? head type tone. He had just finished the machine head record in ninety four, right? And he had just done the Carcass Heartwork record. They yeah. both used that amp. So he's like, he didn't like it. He said, my cabinet was whack. He said, um, your head was, was just, you know, uh, he, he, he just wanted me to go use his stuff. And I was like, no, nah, man, this is, this is my sound. This is my sound. I'm not going to change that. And uh, so we fought for 10 days, <laughs> 10 fucking days. We didn't get no guitar tones for 10 fucking days. Right. And we plugged in. I gave him the benefit of the doubt. Plugged in the 5150, put the two screamer, used the, the PV cab, and it sounded like those records. I started playing machine hit songs. I started playing hard work songs. And I go, look, it sounds like them. Yeah. I can't, I can't use this. So one day I was uh the, this was in upstate New York, a place called Bearsville. And it's next to a small town called Woodstock. I don't know if you've ever even been up there, but I've never been to Woodstock. Yeah. These are like, we're talking like populations of maybe 15, 20,000 people. You know, these are small places. They had a studio up there called Bearsville. And there's a, there a little market down the street. 
And I went down there to go buy some, I don't know, I was buying something. And I noticed that one of the guys that was working there was like, uh, he was in a band. I'm like, what band's he in? Oh shit. That guy's in, that looks like the guy, that looks like Dr. No from Bad Brains. Oh, and I was like, yeah. And I started talking to him and he's like, oh yeah, you got, what band are you guys in? Oh, Fear Factory. Oh, cool. You know, what, what are you, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, we're recording up in Bearsville. He goes, oh yeah, that's a nice place. Uh, I go, yeah, man, but the but the producer's giving me crap about my my amp sound like shit. Can you help me out? I mean, is there anything you can do for me? He's like, dude, I got some brand new Mesa Boogie gear. Because I got I got the new rectified cabs. I got the, the dual rectifier, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, maybe you can rent it to me. He goes, yeah, I'll come by there in about an hour. And I'll come by there and I'll drop it off. I'm like, all right. So he comes by, drops off this gear, right? I didn't use the Mesa Boogie uh, head, but I plugged it into the cabinet, right? This nice brand new fucking uh, triple rectifier cab or double rect dual rectifier cab, Celestia V30s in it. That's a cool cab. Plugged it, plugged it in with my with my with my head, and I was like, "That's it! What? What? That's it!" And Doctor No was like, "Yeah, you know, like he helped me out. It was great." Um, and I told Colin Richardson, this is it. I'm not going back to the shit. This is it right here. And so he had to, I felt like I had to fight for my fucking tone. Yeah. And it really, and it really kind of pissed me off because we wasted 10 days, right? And we finally got the tone and it became legendary. So how much of that tone though, and this is something, and I, you know, I know there's not everyone that listens to this is a guitar player, but I'm a guitar player, you're a guitar player, so we got to talk about this stuff. <laughs> we talk about so much how tone is in the hands and how much of that, like if I picked up your rig, right? I mean, how much of that is just that's Dino's hand? Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's majority of my hand because I could pick up your rig and probably sound like me, you know what I mean? Make it sound like me or... It's, you know what, it's, 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 a, it's a lot of technique. It's a lot of technique. It's, it's the palm. It's the palm right here. And it's, the, and it's how you attack the pick. How you attack the strings. Sorry. How you attack the strings. Now, I use this. I use my fingers sometimes to really dig into it. Hmm. And sometimes I just use my wrist. And sometimes I use my arm. And it's really how you attack it. And it's really how you pick it and strum it, how you hold it, how you hold the strings, how you bend them. You know what I mean? All of it has to do with feel. It's all connected, right? Uh, how you, how you, um, everything from how you hold the fucking guitar, right? And it's all connected. And of course, you know, a good portion of that is your tone, right? Is your amp that you use how you set it up as well you got to set it up to how you like it and once you find that sweet spot that's it you got it so with this this amp that got stolen and what year was it sold like 98 99 or even later 99 1999 no i'm sorry 1998 so why couldn't you just get the same model amp and go back to the same person who had modded it and just get to do the same thing to another amp Okay, I'm glad you asked that question because the guy who did it went back to his country, which was in Israel. Man, you can get to Israel, all right, buddy? You've been all over the world. No, no, no. 
I no, I got to Israel later on. I just didn't know where he went. Oh, okay. For a long time. I didn't know where he went. I went back to the place that he was working at. He was renting a spot here on Cahuenga Boulevard in North Hollywood. He had a little spot there. And he had a little sign on the top that said Metalhead. And he was doing mods there. And so I went back there. The sign was still there, but he was gone. There was nobody there. And I, I went back there like a bunch of times. So finally, somebody told me, yeah, he, he, he went back to his country in Israel. Well, do you have his information? No, I don't have his information. Thank God, uh, you know, when Facebook came around, he was on there. Finally found him. Right. And I did go to Israel. <laughs> don't think I didn't. Don't think I didn't. And. You know, it was so long ago because this was in 1988 when I got to the headmate modded. Um, so and we're talking like 2010 that I finally found him. Wow. Right. And so, yeah, well, he well, unfortunately, he forgot the mod. Just forgot it. Didn't have the schematics that he gave me that weren't the correct schematics, blah, 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 blah. So I was lucky enough. To find another head that he had, because he had modded a bunch of heads back in the day, right? And so they're out there. You can find them, right? With the same and mod. same mod I had. Yeah, he did a, a did it a few a few times. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, but they're but they're out there. They're very rare. You can find it. But uh, Mike Fortin found one. Uh, in case people don't know who he is, he's made a you know the thirty three pedal. He's made the Meshuggah head. He's made a lot of stuff. Um, anyway, he, he, he had one, he found it and he made a couple of them for me. So now I have that tone back and that's what I've been using on these recordings. That's interesting because I really felt like when the new album, which is not out yet, but I was, I was lucky enough to get, uh, a, an advanced copy of, I was like, wow, this is the first album from Fear Factor that I felt like it had that, that top end. You know what I'm saying? There's this, it, that's the thing that seems to be noticeable. It's funny, funny because you're not the only one to notice that. And when you say the top end, some people don't know how to say it, but they always say they compare it to a record. And what they be comparing the, the tone to is demanufactured. But you know, you nailed it a little bit differently. Yeah, there's that top end that can only come maybe from a Marshall or a modded Marshall or something like that. Right. Something that's not necessarily in, in a lot of other heads that are out there. So, yeah. So I, I definitely felt that, you know, Mike Fortin nailed it and I got that tone back, you know, maybe, you know, but the thing about it is it's like, I'm using the seven string, different pickups. Maybe if I went back to the same guitar that I had when I was recording the manufacturer, which I have with that same EMG 81 and that same tuning that it would sound more like the manufacturer. And I have, but I wanted to use my new signature guitar in that recording. So it, it wasn't a JCM 800, right? Yes. It was a JCM 800. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little obsessed with that cause I've had Rich Ward who was in stuck mojo on the show and I had Tom. Oh, he had some great heads. Tom Maxwell from, uh, with nothing face now, hell yeah, who all had like these m different modded marshals, but everyone, it's not like any of those guys' tone sounded similar, 
but there's something but it there was just some of these great tones coming out of the 90s with these modded marshals with people tuning low and it was just badass so i'm, I'm always trying to do the homework yeah well you know rich from stuck mojo has got a great right hand he's got that fucking tone as well too he knows he's got those marshals dialed in really well so yeah I'm a, I'm a big fan of his sound and his tone for sure uh but um yeah it's it's just uh you know people were doing a lot of mods back then on those marshals not not just you know you know metalhead and there was a bunch of other guys who were doing mar- uh mods i mean even all the early van halen stuff you know was all modern marshals and stuff and i believe that that's was probably part of his sound that he went for when he did the evh and the 5150 and all that stuff oh no no doubt no doubt um kind of speak you you talked a little bit before about demanufacture and uh you know does it feel like and and in many ways you know so many some bands are lucky enough to have a record or two records or three records that really seem to impact the genre as a whole and make an impact and become classics. Uh, do you ever feel that somehow you're always trying to live up to that or that you're in the shadow of that, or are you just kind of proud of the legacy? I'm definitely proud of the legacy. And I never feel like I'm living in the shadows of any of my records, but every record that we do, has a different type of statement. You know what I mean? When we did Soul of a New Machine, that's, that statement was like death, grind, fucking mixed with industrial. And, you know, the clean vocals, and the clean vocals and the syncopated guitar and, and, and double bass was something that really stood out. And a lot of people didn't know what to make of it, you know, especially with the clean vocals and, a, and a, such an aggressive record that was. A lot of people didn't know what to make of it because you had like, you know, Roadrunner pigeoned us into the death metal genre, right? In between the deicides and the suffocations and uh, immolation and every other band you could think of that was death metal on Roadrunner at that time. Roadrunner put us right in the middle of all those bands. So uh, all, all the people who were fans of that music were like, what the fuck is this type of vocal bullshit? People were like freaked out. You know what I mean? Like the same thing that people thought negatively about it were the same thing that made it stand out. Of course. Right? And then, then you have Fears the Mind Killer, which is the remixes that came out the same year, 1992, of Soul of a New Machine uh, with techno, dance, industrial, with death metal and grind and fucking clean vocals. People are like, what the fuck is this? You know what I mean? They were like, people were like, again, one of those things that just like people talked a lot of shit. If the internet was around back then, social media, we would have been like probably, we probably would have heard a lot more shit talking, right? But we just heard it from being on tour and going on tour and being out there and people like, what the fuck y'all doing, man? What the fuck is that shit? Fucking techno fucking shit with fucking death metal vocals. What the fuck is that? You know, and I was like, we're like, uh, we're just trying to fucking push the envelope, you know? So, I've done a, I felt like I've done a lot of things to really push the envelope and every record that we do, I feel that, you know, we, I always feel like I got to prove myself every record. And I think, and I don't want to ever lose that feeling because that's what drives me. Right. People can, people can talk all the shit they want on social media, whatever. But I also feel like those are the, that's the thing that also drives me and pushes me to try to fucking prove them wrong 
and make a statement every album. I'll give you another example. Obsolete. Obsolete DMA factors are miles different, right? Obsolete was probably, uh, that was our statement to like what was currently going on as far as musical sound, right? Corn was big, right? At that time, 98. Corn was already huge. You know, they, everybody was like coming out with these low tune guitars and everybody was trying to like out groove each other, out, out low end each other. You know what I mean? Who can make the fattest sounding tones and records and blah, blah, blah. So we were like, okay, I'm going to fucking come out with some fucking sick wrists, throw in some fucking 808s, make it as heavy as fuck and groove it the fuck out. So you first two songs off the bat, shock. There was nothing. That was our answer to like, okay, here's here's the groove that everybody wants. We're gonna give you that groove. Second song, Edge Crusher. You know what I mean? We were like, we were gonna take this to another level. So to me, I was like, you know, I always feel like we're trying to prove ourselves to every record. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, I kind of was just. I don't know if you. I don't know if you see it that way too. I don't know if you can hear that. No, like, it's, what it's, I'm talking about. Well, it's it's interesting because I'm obviously approaching it from a fan perspective, and you know, those records came out. I was in high school, and being a fan of of heavy music at, at that time, it's it's hard to get around this idea that new metal was just the biggest thing going on. And between that time, kind of between the time you guys put uh, that record out and then Digimortal, it seemed like the whole scene kind of started to change. And, you know, I, the way I kind of really got into Fear Factory is listening to WSOU on, in, uh, in Jersey. And, oh, yeah. and, and Fear Factory was this, like you said, it was this weird thing where you were perceived almost like a death metal band when you came out. Then you kind of got swept up in this new metal thing. Uh, and, but that, but to me, you guys weren't really any of those things, but you were associated with it. And it's, and, and to some degree, if you can kind of ride a wave, that'll help expose the band and get you out to more fans. And, you know, we had cars on the radio. I remember those, I was on K rock out in New York. It was, kind of this crazy thing it's like you kind of just have to go with it like if you can get if you can get <laughs> get on board just 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 go with it um but was it a, a situation for you where in a sense you were happy to capitalize off the new metal wave but it seemed like you guys at some point didn't feel like you wanted to really go down that well you know, first of all, a shout out to WSOU. Thank you for, they used to play us all the time. Fear Factory at five. They would play us at 5 p.m. drive time. It was amazing. And we've done a lot of stuff for WSOU and, and fucking big shout out to them. But at the same time, you know, we didn't have a problem with being lumped in anywhere because we, we did our own version of what we thought was fucking OG, original, and we had this other element that some of those bands didn't have, you know, we still had some of those death metal fans following us and that they liked this a lot. You know what I mean? So, you know, cause we would still rock those old soul of a new machine tracks all the time. You know what I mean? Um, and then when cars hit, 
we did that as a B-side on the DigiPack, you know, just extra bonus song. But the label saw it as a good uh, way to get us on radio. So they, they tested the song on college radio and it took off. They're like, hmm. So they gave it to some station, I believe it was out in Arizona. They tested it there on a regular rock station and it took off, right? It took off and then it just opened the floodgates for everywhere. We were on K-Rock LA, K-Rock New York. We were all over the place, right? And it was great. It was great at first, right? And, we, and it opened the door for us for other festivals, for radio festivals, you know what I mean? Um, playing with other bands like Stained at the time, Limp Bizkit and Corn and Deftones and all those bands that were like borderline metal, but more in the rock genre that was on the radio at the time, you know? So we, we, we were riding that wave, but at the same time, we don't want to be one of those bands that lived by the cover song. We didn't want that cover song to make us, to make us, to break us, right? Because, you know, there was other bands like that, Orgy. At all. <laughs> like Orgy. Orgy was, Orgy was one of those bands. Yeah, Blue Monday. Yeah, that was their biggest hit. They lived, they lived it and they died by that song. We don't want that to happen. Digital, that's my favorite orgy. I love that song. That, that, that's a good song, but it was nowhere near as big as the other one. But it was their, their, their other single that was big. But um, we just didn't want to be that band. So we were like, fuck. So I think it was like 99 Ausfest, which is probably the last time that we really played it. Right? Um, but no, we were playing it all the time. Okay. But like 99 Ausfest was probably the last time that we really played it. Right. People, we had, we had booking agents, we had promoters, we had fans and we just had everybody ask us to play it. We're like, fuck, okay, we got to play it. So we just, we just kept playing it. We just went along with it, but there, something happened. There was a shift, right? Something happened. So radio stations are playing this song. They're playing the shit out of it. Commercial rock radio stations playing the shit out of it. But then they, but then there was a backlash that came in. There was like, callers were calling into the radio station saying you know that why are you playing that car song that that band fear factory that thing's that's they're like a they're like a death metal band why are you playing that what happened was that when people buy the record they put the first song on and it don't sound nothing like cars it was shock and so people were like getting turned off like regular radio listeners were like what the fuck's this you know, you, it's, it, they almost felt like they were fooled. You know what I mean? Yeah. So radio stations ended up pulling the song. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like the shadows. Get down! The wrath of the buzzard. 
WMMS. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, PROH Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Well, it so was... But it was still successful. I mean, at at the time, um, Obsolete was the first gold record you guys had had, right? Yeah. Well, you know, we sold we sold about I don't know I would say close to two hundred thousand records before that song took off. Yeah, yeah. And then that thing took it to another level, right? And we were kind of happy that they pulled the song because then we were like, okay, we don't have to play it again. You know, we don't have to be forced to play it. You know what I mean? So it was in a, in a way it was kind of a double edged sword where it gave you some exposure, sold some records, but it also perhaps put the band in a certain category that maybe you guys weren't totally comfortable with. Correct, and I wish there was streaming back then. Oh yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> it'd be a different story. <laughs> yeah, listen, it's 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 interesting how much that parallels Bad Wolves' entry, big cover. Where same thing, you know, Zombies are a very commercial song. And then you get our record. The first song is Officer Down, super heavy metal song. I mean, the most of the album is really heavy. and But like you said, because they're streaming, they could just go check out the one song they like or maybe the other two singles. Yeah, but you got to realize, you know, you know, active rock radio has completely changed. You got stuff like Five Finger Death Punch that's opened the doors for you guys as well. You know what I mean? And, and numerous of other bands and that, and that type of, uh, you know, exposed, you know, it, it exposed to a, a regular rock radio station, you know, to something that's a little bit more heavier. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. you guys are one of the heavier ones, but at the time when we were doing that, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. They were still playing the Sound Gardens and the Stone Temple Pilots, yeah. you know, and they were still playing that. That was like the heaviest they go. You know what I mean? I just I was just thinking that predates Slipknot coming out too. Oh yeah, totally, totally predates Slipknot. Even when Slipknot first came out, in what nine? No, it was ninety nine when Slipknot came out. Yeah, they were on they were on that Ozfest with us, and they did some shows with a handful of shows with us as well. So there was, but there was a tour. Um, I want to say two thousand one, and it was the Road Rage tour. It was you guys, Machine Head. Camira El Nino. And in my mind, and this is right around the time when I was just getting out to touring and putting record out and kind of being involved. In my mind, it was like, that's the biggest tour in the world. These are the, the two <laughs> of that of that genre. But it was also at this this time period where Machine Head had kind of put out their most new metal record. And I think Digimortal was perceived as a little more commercial. For, for you guys, and from what I heard, the tour didn't do as well as perhaps it was an, anticipated. 
did you feel there was some backlash to what not only what you guys are doing or maybe what that entire was happening that genre well you got to realize also that 9-11 we did the tour like two and a half weeks after 9-11 yeah wow so parents weren't exactly letting their kids go out yet like that you know what i mean because you know it was kind of like when that shit happened it was like stay at home it was almost like a like a short little lockdown that everybody had right uh cd cd sales suffered a lot of things suffered at that time um but i never really felt that you know that tour was because of a backlash of the cd at all whatsoever not, not at all i i it, i think a lot of it had to do with 911 um and the tour actually did do pretty well it did do there all some place fake news i'm hearing <laughs> um you know there was some of course there was some places like in the in the beginning shows right in the beginning of the shows, like the beginning of the tour, their first early shows, yeah, there was a there was maybe you know half capacity, right? But promoters were just happy that we promoters, you know, were telling us don't cancel the tour, please come out here. We want to show people that it's safe to come out to these shows and blah 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 blah. So so that was the reason why we didn't bother canceling the tour because we were going to cancel. Yeah, yeah, we we yeah. ended up doing this tour called the Metalenium with Six Feet Under, Lamb of God, Darkest Hour, and Candiria, but it was, originally it was supposed to be a few foreign bands. So Napalm Death was on the tour, Witchery, Dimmu Borgir, and all, wow. all the international bands pulled out because of the flight restrictions and visas and all that stuff. So it, but, and that tour ended up doing pretty good, but I don't think it was too close. I think it was probably maybe about six weeks between 9-11 and the tour happening, but it was, it, that almost was canceled as well. So check this out. So right after that tour, you know, month long tour, um, that was like October. So right in going into November, we were supposed to do a tour. Check this out. It was going to be Papa Roach, Fear Factory and Alien Ant Farm. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't big. That was, that was going to be, it was going to be big, but Papa Roach pulled, uh, canceled the tour. Wow. Because of- so, because of nine eleven, yeah, and so we were still actually out on the road, and we were supposed to link up with those guys right after the road rage tour. We were going to link up with those guys, and they completely canceled the tour, like literally, like you know, a week. We're like, fuck. So again, promoters were like, don't, uh, don't cancel. Please come here. There's a lot of fans that still want to see you. So we ended up kind of doing like some of the same markets just going right back around during that time. And we stayed out there and we did, we did decent numbers. You know what I mean? Um, but it was, you know, with, you definitely felt that, you know, you know, some fans were really happy, like, fuck yeah, thanks for not canceling. And, you know, thanks for coming out here during this time and playing and blah, blah. We were like saying, thank you for showing up. You know what I mean? So. So I wanted to ask you about the kind of just current state of of fear factory so you're in you know from the classic lineup of the band or original lineup whatever you would kind of say you're the you're the last man standing um i know there's you've been in searches for singers and, and things like that and you're kind of going down uh that path as well does it feel like you're still in a band or does it feel like you're kind of solo man dino out there kind of <laughs> Well, you know, I've always been the kind of guy who's always started my own bands, right? Uh, So I've kind of 
felt like I am starting my own band again. So you know it doesn't I mean? feel more like your project. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call it a project, but yeah, you know, it's like I felt like I am uh, at a fresh at a fresh new start, right? Of course, I have this whole legacy behind me, right? Not just with Fear Factory, but pushing the envelope with bands that I have that sing in Spanish, Brujeria, Asesino, you know what I mean? Uh, being the founder or co-founder of those bands as well, too. A lot of people really don't talk about that because they don't really know too much about those bands, but um, we were pushing the envelope as far as that as well, too. Uh, and there was not really any, not too many bands that were singing in Spanish or in their native language at the time when we first came out doing that kind of stuff. So I always felt like I was at the forefront of trying to push something new. Right. And right now I kind of feel that way again. Um, like I said earlier, I always feel like I have to prove myself on a lot of records, on, on a lot of records I do. And that's, that's just my approach when I go to make a record. That's what drives me. And so right now, you know, me being the last man standing um, doesn't really feel too, much, feel too much different because I write all the music, you know, program drums, you know, uh, bass, guitar. I, I get other people to do keyboards, but the initial idea of how the music is going to sound comes from me. Now, as far as, uh, of course, don't get me wrong, of course, obviously, Digimortal and some of those other records had some other influences, right, from other, art, from other artists. But the majority of it comes from me. It starts with a riff or a beat, things like that. Um, then as far as concepts for Fear Factory, you know, me and Bert have always discussed the concepts of where we're going to go, what the album's going to be called, the titles. You know, a lot of that stuff came from me because... I'm, I'm good with the word. I'm not good with lyrics, but I'm good with the word. You know what I mean? Oh, we're going to call the song this. We're going to call the album this. So a lot of times, you know, that starts with myself. So I think that musically it's, it's going to be taken care of. It's whoever I get as a singer to best represent the 30-year history that we left behind, right? That Bert left behind, sorry. Um. And uh, that's going to be the big thing that I think everybody's wanting to know or how much this is going to change. And um, I'm not too concerned because you know why? I believe in what I do. I believe in what I create. I believe in my idea. Uh, I can't fear change. I can't fear the future. And I can't fear what people are going to say because I've been dealing with what people are going to say since day one doing, doing Fear Factory. You know what I mean? Uh, so I don't, I don't fear any of that stuff. People can cry. People can complain. And that's okay. People can attack me. That's fine. I'm a strong enough individual to take that. Um, and I understand that some people are grieving. Some fans are grieving. And I get it. And, I, and I'm very vocal on social media. And I try to answer all the questions. You know, telling them it's going to be okay. If you know what I mean. Um, so I don't feel like that... I don't have any fear at all whatsoever. I mean, I think my track record speaks for itself. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting thing because I, I remember when the Disruptor came out, I listened to it like right, right away. And in my mind, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people probably did this too. They forgot 
that Bert was on this new record. So I'm listening to it like, oh, <laughs> Fear Factor with their new singer. And then halfway through the song, I was like, man, this dude sounds a lot like Bert. <laughs> and, then, and then I realized, oh, no, 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 no. Bert actually did this, this record. So um, is that kind of weird, though, where you have a new record with Burton, but then now you have to go do a touring cycle with a new singer. It's a very like almost it's a it, I've, I've, it's rare where I've, I've heard of a scenario like like that, especially when you've had kind of a big gap between records as well. And the pandemic and all this crazy stuff. Yeah, well, I wanted to actually uh, put the new vocalist on the record, this record, but the record company uh, didn't want that. They wanted to keep Burton on the record. And I, I agreed. I had no issue with that either. But I, got, I had my other friends like, you know, Jamie Josta and other friends were telling me, you know, maybe you should just take Burton's vocals out and this would be like your new record, the new singer and get that out there like that, you know, and get people hyped on that. But it was, uh, you know, Monty Connor at, 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 I'm sorry, at Nuclear Blast. I almost said Roadrunner, but Nuclear Blast Records that he was like, you know, we should keep Bert's vocals on the record. This is his last record. Let the fans have his last record. And I said, okay, I got no problem with that. Now it's just about moving forward and uh, getting that right person to best represent this record and all the past records. And, you know, also letting them, letting that person have some creative, uh, uh, creative identity on moving forward with a new record. You know what I mean? Letting them have their own identity, but at the same time, not necessarily uh, forgetting what we created before. You know, they're going to have to, the person's going to have to be uh, very well aware of what Fear Factory is, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of guys, there's a lot of guys who could, uh, I found a lot of talent of dudes and females who can both do the heavy and the beautiful melodic courses. So as I think, I think if I keep that formula, that will, will be okay. I don't think, the, I don't think, you know, of course their tone is going to be different, right? Especially if you got a female vocalist, her tone's going to be different. You can't compare her to Bert. If you did, that'd be pretty dumb, right? Like, Oh, she don't sound like Bert. What the hell is that girl singing? Oh dude, I've, I've heard it all. Trust me. Um, but uh, it's okay, man. That's just, uh, you know, I'll, like I said, I love, the, I love the challenge. I love it. And I love proving people wrong. And I love moving forward and creating something new. And I'm excited. I can't wait. I mean, what has that process been like? Because we're kind of, again, almost mirroring each other's careers to some degree. We're going through the same, battles. just went through the same thing Uh doing a singer search and all that. I mean, uh, how's that process been for you? I mean, how far along are you? I mean, I don't know if you're, not that you're ready to make any announcements or anything, but just how's that process been? Uh, well, it's been overwhelming, actually. A lot of, lot of people all over the world uh, sent in videos, you know, and uh, a lot of them have been really good. You know, a lot of them are really good. A lot of them have been kind of funny. Some dude in the kitchen singing to you, you know, with a ghetto blaster, just you know, putting the song on. Yeah, checks out, you know, and that was pretty cool. Some of that stuff's pretty funny, you know. And people send in joke videos all the time, and I, I enjoy those too. How does this sound? You know, and they fart in the microphone. You know, I'm your new singer. I'm your new frontman. 
I thought it was hilarious. But um, uh, got to nail down to a few. To a few. So, so you should probably be able to make some kind of decision pretty soon. I'm not in any rush to make any kind of announcements. Okay. You know, the main focus is the main focus is getting this record out. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting with Bad Wolves, we haven't started uh, getting like our touring lockdown yet because they were like the agents really want to kind of see some new music out there, see how it feels in the marketplace and then go kind of get offers and, and do all that. Are you guys in that same boat where they want the record to be out for a little bit or do you already have like a touring schedule? Oh, the- we've already, I've, I've already seen dates for next year. Oh, we already got a, like a big touring schedule coming up. No touring this so, year. So next year. Next year, next year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we, we talked a little bit about you being outspoken kind of whether in social media. I've noticed you're on this show, but you've been doing a lot of shows. You've been on Josta. You've been on with Chris. Rob Flynn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rob Flynn. You, you've been out there a lot and you have a tendency to definitely like just <laughs> not pull punches and just be out there. And, you know, your headlines always get picked up on this website and that website. And it's, you know, and you know, the, the metal gossip people always, there's, Oh, what did Dino say? Say this week, is this, something, <laughs> is this something, is this like something you're doing on purpose? Like, is it a strategy to, to help promote or is it just, this is just who you are. It's just like, just the way you do things. Um, I'm, I'm, this is who I am. I mean, you, me and you have a conversation a few weeks, couple of weeks ago at the rainbow. I'm the same way. Just, I just like telling stories. I like telling things that's happened to me over my lifetime. You know what I mean? I have a lot of good stories. I mean, definitely working on a book, uh, slowly but surely. Um, and I think I have, you know, uh, there's been a lot of interesting stories that got picked up recently about, you know, me and Dave Mustaine back in, 1985 when I was like 18 years old and meeting Dave Mustaine at a sandwich shop and making him a sandwich and shit like that. There's, I have a million stories like that. I'll tell you one. I'll tell you one at that same, that same sandwich shop. Uh, the manager who worked there was really cool. And she would close the shop down after we're done cleaning the floors and cleaning up all the sandwich stuff. Uh, she would close up, close up shop and we would fucking drink beer. We would hang out, you know, 18, 19 years old, drinking beer, right? Um, I probably shouldn't say that, but yeah, I was doing that. And, and we would always invite some people over. So she had some friends that came over and this, this, this chick, this, this girl showed up. And I was like, wow, who's that? That girl looks familiar. She looks familiar. And I was just talking to her trying to figure out who she was, trying to figure out who she was. And we made kind of a little connection, right? And then I was like, I don't live too far from here, man. I don't feel like walking, man. I had, had too much beard, you know. I don't feel like walking. She goes, I'll give you a ride. So she gave me a ride to my pad. We were sitting out in her truck. She had a truck. We were sitting out in her truck. And then we started making out, right? And I was like, who is that girl? Like, I, I know her. I know her. And then she started talking about television. She was talking about the television show, blah, 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 blah. And it was Dana Plato from Different Strokes. Jeez. I don't know if you ever watched that show. Yeah, of course. One of my favorite shows when I was a kid. She died, right? Yeah. Yeah, she died a few years ago. Yeah. But it was her. Good Lord. Like 1985, 86, around there. 
Well, you, I hope that's going in the book. <laughs> yeah, there was, you know, we, we had a connection. We had a moment, you know, I didn't see her after that. I never saw her again. Wow. That's, that is, that's, that's insane. Story, the story is Dino. <laughs> so it was Dino Plato. Yeah, man. It was fucking, it was really cool. It was a cool moment. Wow. Um, kind of like going back a little bit to what I was saying about kind of being out there publicly and, and, you know, maybe being controversial from, from time to time, being that you're the last man standing from this lineup of, of the band and, you know, some issues with some other people and some of the bands you've been in. Do you th think you're tough to be in a band with? You know, you know, somebody else has asked me that. I think in some ways I can be. And because only because I don't put up with stuff, you know, I've dealt with a lot of different musicians who've had a lot of different excuses you know what I mean? And I always felt like, for me, it was always like the Kobe and Shaq situation, right? I don't know if a lot of people may not know about that story, but Kobe had issues with Shaq because Kobe was the guy, Kobe Bryant was the guy who would show up to practice early and was the last guy leaving, right? And whatever he had problems with, he would practice it, practice it, practice it. Now, Shaq couldn't shoot any free throws and he couldn't give a shit about it, right? He, he just you know, wouldn't really practice it that much. And it always bothered Kobe because Kobe's like, look, this is what's hurting our game. This is what's hurting our team that you can't make free throws. People are fouling you on purpose because they know you can't make a free throw. Right. And so he, so Kobe's work ethic was completely different from Shaq's. And that's one of the things why they didn't get along very well, because Kobe's like, you know, this guy's Shaq's such an amazing player. He, he needs to work on his weak points. And for me, I felt like I'm, I'm the Kobe guy. I'm the one in the studio all the time. I'm the one there with the producers trying to learn, you know, and trying to, you know, I was the one meeting the record companies back in the day. I was the one who got Ross Robinson. I'd met with all the record companies. And, you know, when we had our first demo, you know, I was the one out there pushing the band. Uh, I'm still now pushing the band. Um, and I was, I was that guy. And it just it seemed like, you know, some of the other guys didn't want to do that. So I felt like, you know, in some ways I felt like, you know, why am I giving you, and you've probably heard this a million times in a million other bands. It's like, why am I giving you all my publishing when you didn't write anything? You weren't even here. You know, why am I giving you my publishing? You know, so there's always that, there's always that thing was like, you know, if somebody's going to say something, like, I was like, you don't have any room to talk because you weren't here when this shit was written. And I'm giving you fucking hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, you know, I don't put up with shit. I don't put up with excuses. I'm not that kind of guy. I was, my father was a workaholic. He was, he was a professional baseball player. He was a farmer when he retired. You know, he, he had a strong work ethic. He, he worked till the day he died. You know what I mean? So at the age of 85. Anyway, so uh i just have that mentality like you know if you're going to come in this room and you're going to write then fucking contribute if you're not going to write then uh I, i'm not going to put up with it oh i can't make it i i got no gas money oh my girlfriend don't want me to show up oh you know whatever my wife whatever so i was like i don't i just don't put up with it and i think that's where uh you know things where we start butting heads so has this, so I, I can understand it from a perspective of starting a band or being in a band when you're 
your 20s and you're still figuring out what it is even means to be in a band or what it means to work hard or be responsible or build something. But as you've kind of gotten older and gotten into new band scenarios or you're starting something from scratch, knowing what mm -hmm. you know and knowing kind of your mentality of how you like to work, are you, are you utilizing that kind of filter to say when you're like auditioning people, okay, I, I need to make sure you have the same kind of mentality that I do, or are you making sure that you can get the right people so you don't have those issues in the future? Well, I've collaborated with a lot of like-minded people. I mean, a lot of people. Joy Jordanson was one of those back in the day when we were doing the road on All-Stars, Andreas Kisser. You know, uh, there was dudes who have that mentality, who have that drive, who have that alpha mayo, but at the same time are able to, they have that drive to 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 want to make things fucking great and killer. And uh, I like that. I, I'm attracted to that kind of musician that have that drive. Unfortunately, some of those musicians are alpha males, right? And alpha males don't really get along all the time. You know what I mean? Um, sometimes they clash, but sometimes the tension works. I think the, the tension that me and Bert had over the years, I thought worked, right? Sometimes that tension works. And, uh, but I'm always the motivator. And, and sometimes my motivation could be looked at as maybe too pushy, right? And that, that could bother people or musicians as well. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, those are some of the issues that, that, that I've dealt with over the years. I mean, I've been on tour with guys who want to go home because they can't, they can't handle being away from home that long. You know, they want to, like, quit. I want to go home. I'll be like, all right, see ya. Get somebody else. You well, know what I mean? Well, we, we, I'm what, listen, I'm what they call a lifer. I'm a lifer, right? I'm to... a lifer, and I'd like, um, I'm, I'm down for this for life. Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing because we're kind of, you know, metal, and especially extreme metal hasn't been around that long, right? So that essentially we're seeing the first generation of elder statesmen in kind of extreme metal, right? Where you can uh, keep a career going. We're seeing the, the cannibal corpses, right? Getting onto their 10th and 11th and 12th records, but they're still out there. They're still killing it. And we're kind of seeing, I guess there's always this idea of like, well, you can't really do this stuff as you get older. Uh, but we're kind of seeing how far you can, you can kind of push that. Right, you got guys like Dave Lombardo out there who are still killing it just as as hard as as they ever have, um, and you know, amongst many other bands that are kind of kind of pushing it. So I guess with you, just have to go till to the till the wheels fall off, or the 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 right hand doesn't doesn't work anymore. Yeah, as soon as the right hand doesn't work anymore, that's pretty much when I, when it's over. <laughs> you know. Uh, but luckily it still does. You know, I'm, I'm 54 years old. I'm only a few years, you know, younger than some of those, you know, uh, bands that you mentioned, you know, Dave Lombardo and Mustaine and Hepfield and Lars. I'm only you know, a few years younger than those guys. So they're still going. Yeah. They're still doing it. You know what I mean? A lot of those guys have a lot of drama in their life too. A lot of things have changed, you know, whether it's alcoholisms, divorces, deaths, you know, members leaving. It's just a part of, 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 of music. It's just a part of, you know, being in certain relationships. Not everybody is meant to be in your life forever. 
it just, you know, things just happen. It's life. There's nothing you could do about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? You could try to change things, but you know, you can't always force somebody to do something they don't want to do. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I, I kind of be remiss to not talk about this since this, this is the X-Man show. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about your time when you were out of Fear, Fear Factory and loved it. Loved it. So let's, so let's talk about like, so when did that happen? Like, was that 2000? 2002. Okay. So you were, you're out, 2002. Of, out of Fear Factory. I mean, did you initially love it or is it something that you grew to love? Okay. Well, first of all, I don't even know what happened there. I don't know why I was out of Fear Factory. I've talked to Burton and I've talked to the other two guys and they all blame each other why I was out. So I never really got a story of why I was out. They just started the band without me. So the, the minute I was out, I was like, fuck, what do I do? Like, you know, I, it took a couple of months for me to realize like, hey, I'm free. You know, I can go and do other things. Like, wow. So the first thing we did, first thing I did was when I went on tour with Brujeria. It's the first tours that we ever did because we've all been, we're all from different bands and we're all, we were really busy. And a lot of times they'd be waiting for me and it never happened. Excuse me. So I was free. So boom, South America, Brazil, fucking Argentina, Venezuela, you know, Mexico. We were just touring like crazy out there. It was great. I was like, ah, I can experience different crowds, different people, different fans, fans who didn't like me for being in Fear Factory or didn't even know that I was in Fear Factory. It was great. It was really, really cool. Then I was like, then I went in to do the Rogue Runner All-Stars, right? Yeah, which is by the uh, way, that's like one of my favorite metal albums in the last, you know, I don't know, 10 or 10 or 12 years. It's, it's it was so well done. Um, actually, they come out even before. <laughs> I remember my timeline screwed up. Uh, but I love the Roadrunner United uh, record. Yeah, well, I mean, well, so what was... How did you kind of get those songs together? Was it all like on your own getting ideas or did you okay. collaborating? So, so check this out. So when I was, when the band, uh, when I was at, right when I was out of the band in 2002, the record company, Roadrunner Records, dropped the band, but they didn't drop me. They kept me on in 2002. And I was a and I was doing A&R for them. You know, because I had done some A&R back in the, back in the, in the, in the mid to late 90s. And I brought them bands, System of a Down, Static X, Grind Shake, and Cold Chamber. Right? So anyways, so they kept me on. And Monty Connor wanted me to start a new band. And, but he wanted me to do kind of some more radio stuff, radio type stuff. And I went, in the, I went in the studio. I wrote some songs with a guy named Jose Maldonado. And I wrote uh, uh, with a guy named John Sankey, who was a drummer. We went into the studio like late 2002, 2003, and we made these kind of more commercial rock songs, right? But at some point, I said no to the project because I didn't want to be that guy. I needed to come out with some heavy shit, right? So when Roadrunner All-Stars came along, Monty's like, I want you to be a, a team captain for the Roadrunner All-Stars, and I want you to use some of those songs that you wrote for your other band right and so that's where the song the end came from the end yeah. um yeah with uh, matt heafy singing on the track 
was the single. Be, yeah, that was the single and also the video. So two of those songs came from that project, right? Um, so yeah, so I did that. And then I also did an Asasino record. The first Asasino record came out. So that's two records out. And then I went and did um, two Divine Heresy records. Now, Divine Heresy, the first record was like something that I would have written for Fear Factory, but a little, little faster and a little more. There's more solos. There's more riffs. Uh, had some more. Th- it sounded like what's that? Sounded like there was black metal influence as well. Really? Yeah, like there's parts I'm like you know the orchestration and stuff. Just I don't know. Like it almost reminded me because right at that time it's when Dumbo Gear was really taking off. I was loving, mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't as originally with Nick Barker too. So he was you know the Cradle of Filth guy, you know. Yeah, well, you know, when that project first started, it was John Sankey on drums, but he had to leave the country because of because of uh, visa issues. Same thing with Nick Barker. I had Nick Barker in the band for uh, two or three months, and then he had to leave. Same thing, same issues, because he had uh, visa issues. There are visas right now because you're only allowed to stay in here three months. Yeah. So uh, the majority of stuff was written with John Sankey. Uh, a couple of songs were written with Nick Barker. Um, but maybe, maybe that's where the influence came from, but that's not really how I saw it. But I guess that's how you see it. That's cool. Um, but yeah, so I did those two records. I did two records. Uh, so that's four records now that had come out in between my time being out of, uh, fear factor from 2002 to 2009. Right. And I was pretty excited about it at first. I wasn't, but after a while, I got really excited because I was like, wow, I could do all these other things. And I could also explore more on my guitar playing, Divine Heresy being the main one, because I had a lot more riffs, a lot of more intricate stuff, you know, some guitar solos. Like I said, you know, I played with a different drummer, Tim Young, who added all those drum solos, I mean, drum fills, and, you know, a lot of those tom rolls and just awesome. his intricate, his intricate tech, symbol technique and stuff like that. Um, I was very proud of all that stuff. I'm very happy that I got to do it because if I was in Fear Factory, I wouldn't even have time for that. Yeah, actually, there was a question I, I meant to ask earlier and I totally forgot. With Fear Factory, and I guess to, to some degree, it's just like your style is your style, but Fear Factory has a very kind of like definitive, like here's what Fear Factory does, right? Like it's a kind of, I don't say it's a box, but it is a certain kind of certain parameters. Does that uh-huh. stifling sometimes creatively to, to feel like, all right, I have to create something within this framework um, and just, you know, is, is it ever tough to kind of feel inspired or feel like, man, we're doing something new or kind of like, it has to be this kind of riff or this kind of tempo or this kind of platform? Yes, when I go into write, uh, it, it depends on what project I'm working on. Yeah, of course. Like when I'm doing Brujeria, it doesn't sound like Fear Factor at all. You know, it's a little bit more simpler, uh, and it's a little bit, you know, less, you know, syncopated drums and uh, kick drums and guitar, so way less of that. Um, Asasino is much more extreme. You know, it's more along the lines of death metal and grindcore. So... What, whatever project I'm working on, I try to focus on that project. So, yeah. But you got to remember that, you know, before Fear Factory, I was doing Brujeria. You know, I had Brujeria going. 
So that was actually my first records that I had come out was Brujeria Records. So when I did Fear Factory, it was like, okay, this is what we are. This is what we're going to sound like. And boom. I think that that, that really started on Demanding Factor was when we discovered our sound and what it's going to be, right? And I just kind of sort of stuck with that formula forever. Up until I came back in 2009, when we went, went in to do Mechanize. Mechanize, I think, had a lot more different riffs in it. It had some thrash beats in it. We had Gene Hoagland in the band at the time. Um, and, of course, he put his stamp of, you know, thrash type of beats, and I wrote riffs for that. Um, but it wasn't that difficult because I was doing some of that with Divine Harris. Yeah, so it wasn't that difficult. It felt very much in the Divine Heresy mold where it was just a bit more technical, faster, just more. It seemed like the band was trying to go like, yo, we're a fucking metal band. That's what's happening here. <laughs> yeah, there was, um, there was a lot of similar elements for sure. And, then, and I think one of the reasons why is because, again, having to try to prove myself. I want to fucking bring back something fucking brutal for you guys to like. Here are the riffs. Here's the vocals. Here's the fucking beats. Here's the kick drums. Here's the syncopated patterns. You know what I mean? Here it is. Everything that makes Fear Factory a, a, a classic band, I wanted to bring all those elements in and add new shit. And another thing, too, is I was doing Divine Heresy's Bringer of Plagues during the night. And during the day, I was doing Fear Factory. So I was having double rehearsals. Double, double writing sessions, uh, double, uh, double recording sessions at the same time, and double mixing. You know what I mean? Uh, we were mixing Mechanize during the day, and at night I would go with Logan, Logan Mater, and mix Divine Heresy at night. So I was doing two records at the same time. Those records came out the same year. And so, yeah, they have a lot of similar elements to them. Well, one of the things I noticed with the the yet to be released album Aggression Continuum is it seems like it's kind of almost found uh, a different kind of equilibrium where it's not quite as crazy technical and fast as those records, and it, so it's brought a little bit more of the I think the groove of like maybe the like the obsolete era and the hooks, but it's still it's like a, a nicer balance because I think sometimes. You know, you'll have a band who will have a definitive sound and then they'll kind of go through that phase of getting more commercial and then they'll go back to the roots. So they'll go like, so they'll go back to being heavy, but then sometimes when they go back to being heavy, they kind of lose the hooks that they discovered during their commercial. And it's like, hey, just because you go back to be heavy, don't, don't remember, don't, you know, forget to lose the hook and, the, and that stuff that. Look, you can't forget where you came from. You can't forget. Never. So, like, after DG Mortal, my answer would have been the first Divine Heresy record. That would have been my answer to the next, to the next record. Yeah. Right? I couldn't do that till years later when I came back with Mechanize in 2010. I was like, okay, you, you, the last record you got from me from Fear Factory was, was DG Mortal. Now I'm going to fucking bring the heat. And, and that's what I did. And I, and I kept with that. I stick, I, st I stuck with that all the way through industrialist Genexus, And then now this record. Well, so when does, 
the new record come out so the people listening can go pick it up? June 18th. They can go to fearfactory.com and you can get everything, all the pre-orders, vinyl, cassettes, cassettes. Yeah, we're bringing cassettes back. Uh, um, uh, CDs and T-shirts and merchandise. And you can also, uh, you know, on Spotify, Deezer, Tidal, Amazon Music, YouTube Music, you can go on there and you can pre-save the record there and you can get a chance to win this guitar. Not this particular guitar, but uh, my signature guitar from Ornsby. Ooh, so like they can that. go, they can go pre-save and you can get a chance to win this. Also, uh, we're going to be giving away some of my uh, preamp pedals that I have through Proton Pedals. We're going to be doing that. We're also going to be giving away some of these pickups. Right on. This, this is Seymour. This is a Seymour Duncan signature pickup, and it's called the Machete. Machete. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Listen, Dino, thank you so much for being a guest on, on the show, man. It definitely uh, is very is very cool. I think a lot of people are looking forward to this this record coming out and seeing the, the new singer and the touring schedule and, and, and all that. It means obviously it's it's very exciting for all of us to kind of get to the post-pandemic world where we're all back on the road, having fun, hanging out. And uh, definitely, I just really appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, man, thank you for giving me the time. I totally appreciate that. Uh, giving me a platform to talk about myself <laughs> and the record. <laughs> you know us. We love talking about ourselves. <laughs> and, and to clear the air about a few things. Sure, sure. Well, definitely, man. I, I think you're one of the people that, you know, you're a staple in the, in the heavy metal community. And anytime you are out here, people, people want to hear what you have to say. So I, I know my listeners are really going to enjoy this. So. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. Hey, have a good one. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. I'll see you out there. Oh!
So that was a brand new Fear Factory track entitled Disruptor. If you couldn't tell from the uh, the lyrics there. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dino. I felt like we, that was a, I call like a, a high RPM pod. You know, like we, we kind of covered a lot of ground. And for me, what is a short amount of time. But so I, I felt like we, we got to a lot of places. I felt like we, you know, we, we got past some old shit. We moved on. And yeah, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And uh, yeah, so I've heard the, the new album and I kind of wish I could have played another song because that song's already out there, but I can't really play songs that are not available to the public yet. So I had to stick with that. But there's there's some tracks on there. That thing is pretty, it's pretty serious. So I think you guys are going to enjoy the record as well when it comes out. And we have some mail and this, this went to the Sound Talent Media website. But like I said, if you guys write me, I'll read it on the show. Maybe not all the time. If it's sometimes, you know, every now and again, I'll get a very weird message. Maybe just some someone pitching me their band or something. And it could be strange. <laughs> but if it, you know, it's something you'd like to be read. If you've got a question, we, we'll do it at the end of the show. We'll do it. I think it's, I think it's fun. I like to connect with, with all you listeners. I appreciate it. So this is from Abhishek Timbadia, and if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I apologize wholeheartedly. He goes, Dear Doc Coyle, I recently found your interview podcast with Ryan Martini, and I wish I stumbled across it earlier, but better late than never. I am so thankful you got him and made him speak about his life, as he has influenced me in ways no friends or family member could have done. Him alone, despite being thousands of miles away, has been a beacon of hope, and I couldn't ha- I couldn't have wished for anything better this year. I absolutely adore his ideas and presence. I'm so glad, and my heart blooms with joy knowing more about him, knowing his struggles, moments of clarity, and his interpersonal connections with you and the people around him. The giftness to my ears that captures his voice is poetic, to say the least. And you'll be busy... I know you'll be busy with your podcast and new records, but you are right. There are people out there that love him, and I'm not shy to say I'd be on the top five list there. (laughs) I was eager to hear from him after his interview with Warwick around 2016, and it had been a while that I was able to learn from him with the retrospective of the pandemic 2020. The dude changed my life for real, real. Big hugs to you both. Thanks once again. Well, thank you, Abhishek, for writing the show. I apologize again for my uh, substandard reading skills, but we got through it. We got through it. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else going on. I'm just back back in the work. I'm, I'm working on some guitar solos. I got some shows lined up. I'm, I'm always, I don't like to really talk about interviews until I do them because you never know if someone could cancel and then it could get all it could get all screwy. But I do have a show, an interview with Wes Hauk, guitar player from Alluvial, previously of The Faceless, Dyer's Murder, one of the best guitar players alive, a friend I've known for a very long time. I love Wes and we we went deep on this show. So this that'll be coming next week. And if you know Wes, you just, you know. If you don't know, then you should find out. So I have that coming up. Yeah, I'm just I'm just grinding. And I've been, 
if you listened a few weeks back, I guess actually even a couple months back, I kind of took a step back from social media. I was really trying to just get right with myself and kind of align my chakras for back, lack of a better word. And now it's, it's so strange with social media because if you take a step back, it's almost like people get used to not hearing from you. I don't know if that's, that's a way to put it, but I think there is a, a two way street of if you're not presenting in a consistent way, people tend to kind of look past you. So it's, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of like re-entering a really fast highway and I'm just trying to figure out a way to do it that, that works for me because I am feeling the need to want to connect more and share more. Uh, I've really been working insularly and, and I've needed that and that's, that's okay. But there is this feeling of maybe missing the boat. And I know that's a little bit self-involved, but I'm going to get back. And actually, I actually uploaded my first videos to TikTok today. It wasn't anything crazy, just the same things I posted elsewhere. But I think TikTok right now, now it's, it's, it's something that I might be interested in because it does seem to be a creative platform. And when I first heard about TikTok, it just seemed like people were doing dances. <laughs> I just really didn't want to dance. <laughs> so it seemed to have this uh, element to it that was very particular. And now it seems to kind of expanded outside of that. And that seems kind of interesting. So I think I might start fucking with, with, with TikTok as I re-enter the social media sphere. We shall see. I'm going to work on it. If you got some TikTok tips, throw it my way. All right. I, I don't know what I'm doing at all. So it should be an adventure. But like I said, I'm feeling a lot better than I have in the last month, six weeks, two months, what what have you been a crazy year and I'm looking forward to things happening. I've, I've been going to, I went to the movies a bunch of times in the last couple of weeks. LA's open in June 15th. I feel it. I need to get these, my, my liberal friends to stop clinging to, uh, <laughs> being in the house all the time and, and actually start going out and experiencing things and just can't wait for shows to get back. That's what, that's what I'm waiting for. Even, you know, even not even talking about my tours, but just be able to go out and see bands live. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready, y'all. All right. I've done enough jibber-jabbering. Thank you for listening. And Mamba's out. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. 
the only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>